Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. In recent months, there's been a flurry of activity in the government related to crypto assets, how to regulate them, and what their implications for national security will be. Though it's common to endorse a simplistic narrative in which Bitcoin and the government are flatly opposed to each other, the truth is more nuanced. We've invited Matthew Pines to the Futurati podcast to talk to us about these issues. Matthew is a managing consultant at the Krebs Stamos Group, a cybersecurity and geopolitical risk advisory firm. He has over 10 years of experience helping the government and private sector firms address pressing security and resilience challenges. As a national security fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, he applies rigorous analytical methodologies to help policymakers understand the implications of Bitcoin as an emerging technology for the benefit of the nation. He holds a master's degree in philosophy and public policy from the London School of Economics and Political Science and a bachelor's degree in physics and philosophy from Johns Hopkins University. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today. Yes. So uh, I got started in undergrad as a physics nerd. So I've been a physics nerd since I was interested in science uh, as a young child. Um, so I went to Johns Hopkins to study physics, thinking I was going to become a professional uh, physicist. Uh, picked up another major along the way in philosophy because I was always had like a side academic interest in sort of the philosophical aspects of physics and how do we interpret our sort of fundamental theories of physics. Uh, as I kind of got, got more into the academic track, I realized being a PhD academic wasn't my cup of tea. Right. Um, so I took a, a pivot uh, towards the end of my undergrad, knowing I wasn't going to go into, into a PhD program. I interned on the, on the Hill with a physicist, actually, a uh, member of Congress. Uh, and that was it, sort of a more foray into like the real policy world. And so I stalled for a bit over in London at the London School of Economics and did a master's there in philosophy and public policy at a really interesting kind of interdisciplinary program uh, and got to spend some you know, fun time in London. Uh, but didn't quite set my career track there. Law school, who knows, came back to the States and got a job <laughs> working for the National Science Foundation, uh, sort of two-year fellowship, supporting a cluster of programs, essentially helping to make grants across uh, the entire field of economics, uh, as well as a sort of a more interdisciplinary branch of funding that they uh, reserve for decision risk in management sciences and then, and then the science of organizations. So kind of a, a complex of disciplines related to game theory, decision theory, kind of the theory of the firm, organizational psychology, organizational dynamics, all very interesting, but again, not really a career path. Uh, I sort of stalled for a while there while I figured out what I wanted to do. And I, I bumped into a buddy of mine who was working for a startup management consulting firm, was doing some work for the government, essentially doing like wargaming, uh, what are called exercises right. uh, in the parlance. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I'll, I'll give that a try. And so I, I joined this sort of small startup consulting firm where that was kind of their niche expertise uh, as a junior analyst. Uh, and I basically built my career the past 10 years sort of in that world, um, sort of jumping from project to project. Uh, but if it, essentially, the, the common thread was trying to help the government understand uh, what its risks are and how to understand and measure its preparedness for those risks sort of across the board, whether it's sort of natural hazards and typical things, hurricanes, you know, earthquakes, tornadoes, pandemics, all the way to, you know, large scale kind of terrorist events, cyber attacks, uh, you know, all out nuclear war, right? So kind of all the bad things you can sort of imagine happening, sort of my job for the past 10 years, we're trying to help sort of systematically think through and analyze those different scenarios, 
um, role play them at different levels of government, whether it's sort of around a table, you know, quote unquote tabletop exercises, all the way up to include the cabinet and the president, uh, and then doing full scale exercises. So we actually, you know, bring hundreds or thousands of people across the country and they actually simulate different uh, sort of events and incidents over over several days with a lot of logistics and, and, and evaluation. Um, for the past few years, I also been managing a lot of different contracts, including one related to um, emerging technology uh, and doing sort of operational experimentation with that. So that's been my professional interest. I have sort of have a sort of a side hobby related to uh, Bitcoin, which is sort of thinking through Bitcoin uh, from that lens, right? So what is the scenario-based planning uh, kind of uh, analysis that you would do uh, uh, if you're sort of thinking through the, the larger geopolitical macro strategic Im implications of Bitcoin uh, as, as an emerging event, right? As if it became sort of macroeconomically relevant over the next five or 10 years, you know, what would that mean and sort of play through, you know, maybe the first or second order implications of that. Um, so we, we're not strategically surprised, which is sort of the one thing the US government does not want to be. So, so I've been sort of engaged in sort of the Bitcoin side of things from that kind of um, intellectual perspective and been supporting this uh, so sort of new think tank that just got started called the Bitcoin Policy Institute uh, a few months ago to try to put out some more long form research and analysis to examine Bitcoin from like a serious sort of um, a sort of policy perspective. And so I've been sort of bringing that national security perspective to bear. A few colleagues have been bringing more like energy, environment uh, and sort of broader economic uh, analysis. So so that's also kind of been been in my um, sort of side hobby uh, a wheelhouse over the past few months uh, in addition to my day job. Um, so yeah, that kind of is the, is, is the, is, is the short, uh, the, the short version. That's a pretty remarkably diverse background. And I can, I can see why you've ended up being one of the leading voices in the national security implications of Bitcoin. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to say leading cause there's not too many of us. Uh, right. <laughs> so it's good to, you know, be, you know, to, to, to sort of choose your, to, Choose the pond you want to swim in, right? Be, be a right, nice big right. fish in the um, It's interesting. So I think that that's that's changing a bit. I think Bitcoin, from that security perspective, has been on the radar, but from a very narrow lens, right? It's sort of emerging originally, sort of dark web, drug money, and it was like within the remit of pretty like narrow groups within, say, the Department of Justice, the FBI, and maybe parts of the intelligence community, from like a pretty narrow uh, perspective. And it was, you know, like how most people observed it, essentially this emerging digital money that was mostly kind of either halfway between a science project and some sort of criminal criminal enterprise. Um, and then it's matured dramatically. And I think some people's mental perceptions are still anchored in that original encounter, especially in the government, because in the government, those things don't change a whole lot. Like once you create a group whose job it is to do something, that group just keeps doing that thing until something dramatic changes right. and it doesn't happen. So there is that sort of cognitive preconception bias just general inertia that you see in the government, I think that is what's changed a bit. And, and I think it's accelerating in the past year or so. Yeah. When did you first find out about Bitcoin? So I first found out of Bitcoin probably in like 2015, 2016. But like most people's first encounters, you, you know, sneer at it or right. you dismiss it. Um, and then I had a close friend of mine who like got bitten by the Bitcoin bug and then went like all in on like crypto. Right. And he like, was you know one of the like ICO people was like all about you know Fun. he like had a quasi hedge fund doing coin off it was like and of course I saw that and I sort of looked in horror at that right. <laughs> um, and I thought this is gonna blow up in your face it's a total scam you know what are you doing um, and uh, yeah we had a long long long, long form arguments I remember like over a cabin where I just was like tearing into Bitcoin like you know nonstop. Um, and, uh, and then after that, I sort of, you know, again, like preconception bias, right? Like, because I had made that argument so stridently and then I had just sort of looked away. And then I and then I came back to it in about 2019, actually. And I thought, okay, this thing hasn't gone away. Um, in fact, it's probably become more mature. And so that's why I started reading more intently about it. Um, and I had been like acquiring like bits along that way just to try to like force myself to learn. Um, and then I sort of got derailed in January, February of 2020 uh, with the pandemic. And I was like really focused on tracking this emerging virus in, in China. And, you know, I'm as, as, as my career has sort of probably taught you, I'm like intensively like acutely conscious of those things. And I had known from work that this was going to be a problem. Right. Um, so I was like very much like all in on, on tracking that and preparing and, and yeah, doing lots of stuff on that. So, um, that derailed sort of my Bitcoin focus until about say the spring or summer where I sort of stepped out and I saw what Michael Saylor did with MicroStrategy, strategy. And I thought, right. okay, we're in a completely different ball game. 
uh, from like a global economic perspective, like the, the, the scale of the response that I saw coming down the pike was going to have sort of dramatic consequences for the U.S. fiscal position and sort of the global economic system writ large. Um, and that's when I just started to do, like doing the, the real deep dive into, into Bitcoin um, and, and starting to see that this is going to become sort of potentially ge geopolitically and macroeconomically relevant. And that's when about, you know, for about a year, year and a half, that's when I've been sort of thinking more in public about those questions. Well, let's uh, let's stick with that theme because I want to follow up on some of the national security threads that you laid mm -hmm. out earlier. You argued in a recent paper, Bitcoin supports U.S. national economic strength, that Bitcoin is a national security asset because it will mm -hmm. help sustain our strength, counter our strategic adversaries and promote our values. So why don't you just start at the top and walk us through that case? <laughs> yes. So I anchored that paper, which was me trying to put down you know, in long form, some of these loose, loosely confederated thoughts I've been bouncing around for a while. And I try to think about a way to frame it really with the sort of DC blob, for lack of a better term, as my intended audience, right? The people who I work with, who I know sort of think about the world from a certain perspective, how to speak in their language about Bitcoin, right? Because sometimes that's kind of the key jump is like there's a lot of writing about Bitcoin that sometimes is speaking to itself inside its own echo chamber and, and takes a lot of like presuppositions for granted, almost as um, kind of dogmatic canon about what it means to believe in Bitcoin. And you need to kind of step out of that to be able to translate it to a completely different audience so they can appreciate, you know, some of the more salient strategic features of it. Um, and that's what I tried to do. And so I looked at uh, President Biden's interim national security strategic guidance, which is a document that most administrations release some version of when they come into office is like, this is how we view national security from like a really high level, like, you know, strategic perspective. And uh, I looked at that document, I was reading it, and I, it sort of jumped out at me that the key uh, sort of pillars that they, they, they anchor that document on, like to have a direct mapping to what I saw sort of the argument about Bitcoin forming. And so I basically just almost um, like used those wholesale, right? So that, you know, national economic strength, counterintuitive adversaries, spreading our values is essentially what's in that document, right? So I was like, just said, okay, well, these are the three things that President Biden says are the keys to U.S. national economic strength. Like, how can I tell a compelling story about how Bitcoin could support each of those three elements in a very straightforward way? So that's basically what I tried to do. And so the first was, you know, economic strength, which, and there's a few different aspects of, but essentially, you know, as a maturing uh, technology, there's a whole, so, a, a whole host of associated um, innovation, capital market, just basic appreciation, right? Like you have this Bitcoin companies going, going public. Uh, and appreciating, you know, the value of, of their equity. There's private equity firms. There's a whole host of job creation and development in sort of Bitcoin and Bitcoin-related uh, companies and industries in the United States. So, to the extent that we want to be a hub for technology innovation, for uh, you know, appreciation of our capital markets, pretty straightforward. Um, but then there's just the idea of well, Bitcoin as um, a, a monetary technology on this geopolitical stage. And that takes a little bit more to unpack, and it's like a longer form, more speculative argument. But the basic idea is Bitcoin is not a threat to the dollar by any means. Bitcoin, in a sense, is a substitute global reserve asset in a, in a monetary system that's built on the treasury security as the foundation reserve asset for the world, which is putting a lot of weight on a debt security for a government that has a lot of debts and is vulnerable to shocks to that system. In fact, you know, one of the primary concerns of the Federal Reserve and the monetary authorities writ large is the stability of the Treasury market. So anything that you can find that can help shore up confidence and stability of that Treasury market would be, would be a good thing. And so the extent to which Bitcoin appreciates as a reserve asset that's predominantly held by Americans and by American companies relative to our adversaries who may be trying to move to a commodity-backed gold reserve system, then we would stand to gain disproportionately. So if Bitcoin were to monetize alongside or instead of gold relative to, relative to um, uh, our adversaries, we would stand to gain disproportionately. So uh, in that sense, you know, this is more of the, the longer term, okay, how can we find alternative sources of economic support, both economic growth, technology growth, but also just sort of reserve assets that people want to hold that, um, that, that America holds more of, right? So if it goes up and we hold more of it than our, than our adversaries, then we get you know, wealthier in terms of the purchasing power of that asset um, over time. Now that takes, that's a little more speculative. It takes, it, it takes a lot more to unpack that one um, beyond the kind of the bottom line up front I just gave. The second, which dovetails a bit with that, is counterintuitive adversaries. Because in a sense, American power for the past, you know, since, since World War II has been predicated on our dominance of the global monetary order, right? We, we were able to rewrite the rules of the global economic system coming out of World War II, the Bretton Woods arrangements, and then creating a whole host of these other institutions um, that's really cemented our power. And that structure 
while it's gone through a number of modifications over the decades, has been sort of the core foundation of American uh, political and geopolitical power, right? So the economic system, the monetary uh, uh, system that, 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 that the world runs on is what, you know, in a sense, has driven America uh, uh, sort of hegemony um, over, over the course of those decades. Um, now that that system uh, has, has potentially been uh, coming to um, its its uh, its sort of self determined end in in, in the sense that uh, the, the requirement to be a twin deficit nation to provide the world with enough dollars uh, to keep the dollar as a global reserve currency has a dramatic consequence to our domestic industrial base. We have to outsource all of our, all of our manufacturing, um, yeah, yeah. which is done. We have to then turn our economy into basically a fire economy for the, the sort of uh, you know finance sector insurance real estate to be able to recycle those those dollars from surplus countries around the world back into our economy and that distorts sort of the basic economic system and it overemphasizes the fire sector relative to say manufacturing and that has a whole host of political consequences right you have rising polarization you have rising inequality you have sort of the the the, the urban uh coasts against sort of the deindustrialized heartland which creates these political pathologies that that, that we've witnessed, uh, witnessed recently so there's a whole host of um problems that being the world's reserve currency has generated for us that um, that our adversaries are seeking to exploit. And so how do we think about the way the global economic system is going to evolve over the next 5, 10, 15 years? What are our adversaries trying to do that we can counter? Um, and so the other key part of that is what are, what are they trying to do, right? Because America doesn't stand in a vacuum. Importantly, China, which the Department of Defense, the host community, multiple administrations, you know, it's it's been very consistent. Uh, one of the few bipartisan points of consensus that China is the strategic peer competitor for the next uh, several decades. I mean that that they are the pacer, the pacing threat um, that we use to design our military force structure, our basic strategic um, uh, plans. And look at what China's trying to do with respect to sort of the monetary order is a few things. One, they're they're basically um, changing the relationship they have with the dollar system. They used to recycle their their the dollars they get from running a you know structural trade surplus with us away from well they used to uh, uh, recycle them into US treasury securities. That was basically the 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 MO that we had engineered going back to the Saudis in the in the 70s and the Plaza Accord with Japan and Germany. Right. And we turbocharged it with with China in 2001, which is basically taking surplus dollars uh, because all trade is nominated in dollars and recycling into our debts which is able basically to cement our our power and allows us to finance uh you know our our our, our national expenditures sort of um uh extremely uh efficiently uh they finally pivoted in 2013 for a whole host of reasons but they made the strategic decision to basically stop net accumulating treasuries and instead take those surplus uh, dollar reserves and recycle them in two ways. One, around the world through the Belt and Road Initiative, where they basically are acquiring strategic assets throughout the Eurasian periphery in the Middle East, Africa, South America, and even the United States and, and our allied countries um, to secure like ports, pipelines, plants, et cetera, as well as hard assets like land and spread political influence and corruption. Now, on the back of that BRI dollar-based investment, is coming their digital currency. Uh, so they have a technology suite, basically. I, I sort of call it the authoritarian uh, as a service. So like Huawei 5G, <laughs> sort of Hikavision, surveillance cameras, a whole host of sort of AI, machine learning-based um, software applications, uh, and the digital currency, the sort of DCEP or the digital yuan. Um, and basically they're offering this authoritarian as a service to you know authoritarian inclined developing uh, countries and emerging markets and basically saying, you know, here's an alternative governance model and technology suite that we can basically install, help bring you into uh, the 21st century, but in a in a in a controlled way uh, that allows you to achieve uh, the the benefits of a quote unquote harmonious society that 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 we have, um, but sort of brings them into the Chinese technology stack and the associated political, economic, and trade orbit. So that's a strategic challenge to the United States over the next you know several decades. Is 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 where is the periphery going to go as this sort of the world becomes somewhat divided east and west. Um, and importantly, the digital yuan is a main feature of China's strategic ambitions uh, to achieve that. And so the last point is where does Bitcoin play it? So what you see around the world is um, sort of crypto dollarization. So you're seeing the uh, proliferation of stable coins, dollar pegged digital assets, some of you know more dubious uh, stability than others, um, <laughs> but it's sort of a free market for dollar money. And around the world, it's hard to get dollars. Um, 
And, and you have to go through a banking system that sometimes you don't have access to, or the, the countries themselves suffered chronic dollar shortages. This is like a well-known macroeconomic problem called the euro dollar shortage. Um, just, you know, there's a scarcity of dollars uh, in the global economic trade system. And these countries that don't have, um, you know, a whole lot of trade, you know, have to sort of beg, borrow, and steal to get dollars. And if and and so like the dollar is the coin of the realm if you're in Nigeria or if you're in, um, you know, Indonesia, et cetera. And, and here's essentially a free market internet-based dollar, um, you know, sort of digital equivalent that you can hold on your phone that, that, you know, if you have a sufficiently circular market of people who are willing to accept that, it sort of starts to take on some of the properties of the dollar, not all the properties of the dollar um, that you maybe have in your domestic banking system, but like for some people is good enough. And there's a sort of flywheel that happens between Bitcoin's appreciation over the past two, three years and crypto dollarization, these sort of dollar-based stable coins, because if you think about it, okay, like you're taking, if, if you're thinking about like, like what does Nigeria do, right? Nigerian government central leadership is pretty close to China. They have a digital currency that is sort of compatible uh, uh, and interoperable with the Chinese digital yuan. Uh, and so there's a sort of political elite project uh, to essentially align Nigeria structurally uh, with China and sort of, you know, t link, link the sort of digital currency systems together. But at the population level, this sort of organic adoption of Bitcoin and dollar-based stablecoins. And so you're seeing this sort of different trends, right, coming into potential conflict. And essentially, dollar-based stablecoins and Bitcoin are essentially fighting a fight against that creeping authoritarian sort of digital dystopia that China's trying to export to emerging markets. And it's sort of fighting it on its own. Uh, so you think about it from a, uh, and this is sort of the pivot to the last point, which is like American values, right? Sort of how do we sustain American values? How does Bitcoin sustain American values? Well. I mean, there's a domestic argument that Bitcoin essentially embodies, uh, you know, uh, private property, freedom of expression, um, the ability to um, to engage peer to peer, right? Sort of the foundation of you know the American political sort of ethos that you know we have um, you know the, these inalienable rights uh, and and that we sort of respect private property, we respect um, commitment to freedom of expression um, within limits, of course, but that there is you know an essential default mode uh, towards uh, sort of liberty, right? Uh, sort of small L uh, kind of liberal values. And and so domestically, you see that in a lot of areas where people can get access in, into forms of transaction payments that they might be blocked out of because they're, you know, sex workers or they, they have a criminal record and it makes it very difficult to get a bank account or they've been redlined in the past so they can't get bank accounts. Right. They're victims of, of domestic abuse. And so it, their their spouse watches their bank accounts and they can't transact privately. So there's a whole host of sort of, um, you know, values domestically that, that Bitcoin can help instantiate. And then over, overseas, it's, it's the same idea that like um, a lot of countries around the world don't have the benefits of being in a quote unquote stable currency regime that most people in the, in, in the West are used to, even though we have recent inflation. And so that for those people, you know, they have no options, right? They don't, they can't get access to, uh, you know, like, like international equity markets. They can't get access to the U.S. Treasury market. They can't get access to even like dollars sometimes, right? To put under their mattress, right? So like, how do those people hold anything that they can say is theirs um, and can actually own it? Um, they're very rare uh, for people around the world to actually own anything. Um, and this is a form, this is a bare instrument they can own. And you don't have to have much more than just a phone. And and the, and sort of the mobile development um, has really out sort of jump started a lot of the um, sort of internet um, uh, sort of based economies throughout throughout the developing world. So as you see that mature, and it's really just in early days, um, you could see sort of the proliferation of these uh, technologies, sort of monetary technologies, but they're really essentially um, you know uh, technologies. Um, uh, that really, you know, empower individuals relative to potentially oppressive and unstable governments. Well, I think we can wrap up. I have no further questions. <laughs> no, I, I did want to. I did want to follow up on something you said about the the dollar that the sp the spread of Bitcoin doesn't threaten dollar hegemony, and I just wonder if the Federal Reserve Chairman or the the powers that be in Washington would necessarily see it that way, because it sure mm -hmm. seems like number one, America has. I don't know if benefited is quite the right word, given that it's structurally distorted our economy, but that we have enjoyed a position of power as a result of being the default reserve currency of the entire world. And then obviously central bankers or people in Washington can fund public spending through the inflation, of the money supply, and that gets them out of all sorts of trouble that they would get into if the, if the population at large who's actually paying for these things really felt that pinch. So how are you going to make the case to them? Because I don't, I don't know that they would see it that way. 
Yeah, I think it depends on where we think the end state is, right? And I think over what time horizon and then what the risks are given different end states and different time horizons. So for at least my planning horizon, like the five, 10 year horizon, which I think is at this point in time, like that's about as far as you can even like try to reason. Beyond yeah. that, you're you're basically just throwing a dartboard and you're telling a story. Um, I don't know anyone can predict or even try to forecast much, much beyond that. Um, you know, besides sketching broad trends. And so when I think about that relative time horizon, five, 10 years, what I think is really the core period at which we're going to see these strategic shifts come into play and where we need to think outside the box from a sort of a geopolitical and macroeconomic perspective and look at all the tools that we have at our disposal to bolster our, our, our you know, the sources of national power and wield those instruments against, you know, the serious challengers, right? And so, okay, that's the premise. Like, we're going to confront a period of geostrategic, you know, rivalry, uh, monetary, um, you know, challenge, fiscal challenge, constraint, um, you know, it, potential increasing geopolitical disorder, uh, if not war or, or like conflict. Okay, like you have to navigate those next five, ten years. What uh, what challenges are you going to face uh, in terms of your legacy environment, right? And I think you need to think about the current uh, structure of the global economic system. When you think about the dollar system, it has sort of two core elements, and this is key to distinguish between the status of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency and the status of the Treasury security as the global reserve asset. Because those are very different um, sort of features of the dollar system that play very different roles, and they're not you know inevitably linked together. In fact, the dollar has been the global reserve currency much longer than U.S. Treasury security has been the global reserve asset. Um, uh, it's in fact been like the key to sustaining American dominance over the 20th century has been sort of finding relatively smooth ways to substitute a different asset at the foundation of the global monetary system while keeping the dollar as the global reserve currency, right? Because essentially currency is just a medium of exchange for yeah. the most part, right? You use it as a medium of payment. It's also a unit of account. It's just a common language that people use to price things. It's just a, a, a symbol in a certain bank account. Um, but it's not people you actually hold your savings in. It's not the asset that you hold. You had you have some dollars in a bank account, which is a ledger entry um, for your day-to-day -day liquidity needs, including as a sovereign, your day-to-day, your day week-to-week sort of you know balance the balance the trade account. Um, what you hold your savings in is a reserve asset, and that's you know historically the sort of pre-dollar version that was gold. And then it became the Treasury security uh, in 1971, essentially, when we sh when we shifted to um, kind of what we could call the petrodollar, it's really the, the euro excuse me, the, the euro dollar system, where you know the, the, the premise of the global economic order is America secures global trade with the power of our navy, the power of our military. We basically allow globalization to happen after World War II, and the the, the condition was basically, you know, you don't like fight anymore, <laughs> uh, you don't <laughs> invade each other. Uh, and we will secure the peace. Uh, and you basically have to play, about, play by our rules fundamentally, right? And you know the world split into two blocks. There was the Soviet bloc and the, and the, and the Eastern bloc, and we fought you know, in, in the periphery in the, in the emerging markets. Um, and the way we sort of won that war, uh, that economic war, was by uh, finding new ways to sort of uh, you know, engineer our assets at the foundation of the global economic system. And so we were able to ride out of the World War II victory with gold at the foundation because everyone had to give us their gold, otherwise the Nazi would take it. Um, and so because we had everyone's gold and everyone trusted our economy because everyone else's kind was destroyed, um, everyone pegged their currencies to the dollar and the dollar was pegged to gold. And that worked for about 20 years, started to break down in the 60s as we started to do things like the Great Society programs and then uh, the Korean and then, and then the Vietnam War, uh, which started to run tra uh, you know, trade deficits and you know, countries like France were worried that they wouldn't be able to, you know, get their gold claims paid back um, at par, and you know there was a whole host of maneuvers in the late '60s to try to rejigger the system, right? And this is this basic story. You know, we look back into history, you think about where we're going to now, is that these monetary systems that look like they've been around forever, like they they last very short periods of time historically, right? They're talking 20, 30, 40 years right, right. before they sort of engender internal pathologies that force some sort of reset. And that's just like where we are now. I won't go the whole the whole story, but like that 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 like we're we're hitting that sort of moment. And the question is, where are we going to find the next like the next juice, right, to to squeeze out of this system? Um, and so the basic idea here is that you know Bitcoin's about a trillion dollars, a little bit less now. Um, but you know, think in ten years, right? If it were to be 
uh, equivalent to gold, it would involve like a 10x. Well, Bitcoin has done 10xs several times in the past few years. So it's not like an, an impossible proposition. Right. But imagine if it, it says like a 1% chance that it were to monetize to the, to the level of gold, say this decade. Well, that would be a dramatic event of macroeconomic consequence, right? If that were just to happen, you know, without your planning, right, you would be surprised by that. And now you have this reserve asset that's held by, you know, whoever, however, however that process plays out by a lot of people around the world as if it were like their gold reserves. And if you are not planning for that possibility or trying to, uh, you know, make that work in your favor, then then you're going to be left left on the side. And I think the key idea here is that the treasury market is really, you know, it's not well suited to be the global reserve asset. The dollar is extremely well suited to be the global reserve currency because it's got network effects. Yep. It's got, you know, high liquidity, people trust it, people trade it, et cetera. Um, it's the treasury market that is the problem. And they, the government's recognized this, you know, they've written papers after March, 2020, where the treasury market froze, right? Like there was literally like no bids for treasury securities in March, 2020, which was like the crisis moment that forced you know a trillion dollars of QE per week by the Fed because that was like the you know five alarm fire going off like yeah stock market crashing yeah that's a problem for Goldman Sachs but like if the Treasury market doesn't get a bid Uncle Sam has a big problem right, <laughs> uh, right. and so it's so like that happening like is a signal that that system is not stable and yet that's the that's the foundation for the whole global system and that happened in the context of the pandemic you know panic. Um, but if it happened then, it can happen again. And our adversaries saw it happen and saw what our response, what, 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 our, what, what that forced in terms of our response. And so you can guarantee that the Chinese have built that into their plans. If they did like a Taiwan invasion, like how they could, you know, they, they think in terms of multispectral, you know, like war, right? It's not just invasion, it's cyber, it's economic uh, activities, et cetera. So if that's the foundation of the global economic system, and we saw how fragile it is, and we saw how much duct tape and bailing wire it took over the past two years to just keep it together. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't want to just peg the fortunes of our U.S. Of, of our national security on that system without thinking about how we could find an alternative to, to, to support it and, and 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 buttress it. Right. So, if essentially we allow Bitcoin to monetize equivalent to gold um, over the next five or ten years, and it's held by mostly Americans. You know, that essentially restores our national balance sheet to a certain extent and, and reinstills confidence in the Treasury security um, that right now people around the world are sort of losing losing trust in potentially, um, especially at the sovereign level. So there's, there's an interesting tie in here. So a while back, we interviewed Eric Yakes. Are you familiar with Eric? He was on uh, what? Yeah, the, uh, the seventh property. Yes, yes, he wrote the seventh property. Excellent interview, and he wrote a an article recently for Bitcoin Magazine called "Wither Bitcoin," where he made the case that there are cracks forming in the edifice of dollar hegemony, and he points to declining uh, dollar reserves in various uh, for, uh, central banks across the world and, and a variety of other metrics. And his basic thesis was. Once these cracks begin to form, it doesn't guarantee that Bitcoin will become the sovereign reserve currency on the other side of that. But you you have pockets in the network effects, which otherwise are this almost impregnable shield. It's almost it's nearly impossible to overcome some, something that's just already saturating the world economy. But if in response to inflation, in response to freezing the foreign held reserves of the Russian central banks, various sovereigns become less uh, sanguine about the prospects of holding U.S. debt uh, mm -hmm. as a reserve asset, then that means those network effects are less operative and Bitcoin has a gap, which in theory it could move through. It sounds kind of like you would go maybe 60% of the way there, but you mm -hmm. would you would not uh, you wouldn't endorse the idea that this means Bitcoin's going to replace the dollar. Instead, you're, you would point to historical examples of Uncle Sam being very creative in mm -hmm maintaining a dollar-based reserve system, which is undergirded by different assets. It's able to swap mm -hmm. them in and out. So maybe it could just swap in Bitcoin, maintain the dollar hegemony, and we just kind of like keep on trucking. Do I do I have that basically right? Yeah, I, yes. I think over that sort of time horizon that I'm thinking, I mean, you could sort of jump ahead to several decades out and make a whole host of other, I had a whole host of other auxiliary assumptions at, and be a little more speculative um, to get to where Bitcoin is a like world reserve currency. But that to me is going a few steps ahead. And I think we would need to see like, like a, a lot of other things happen before you'd be able to like ascribe certain credence to that scenario. I mean, the biggest thing is it has to become less volatile. Like fundamentally, yep. volatility is a function of uncertainty yep. you know, at, at its core. 
right? So if the if the level of certainty and sort of meta uncertainty around Bitcoin's future price were to sort of self-stabilize, which is how some you know most monetary regimes get created in the first place, but right, right. usually there's like a state who forces that certainty, right? <laughs> um, so whether that can sort of market emerge is is a, is a test. Like we didn't see gold monetized, you know, five thousand years ago, so we don't really know if that's possible. Right. There's like theoretical arguments to make that yes, it could converge to become a medium of exchange and a unit of account and achieve sufficient global adoption that it can serve that role. It's got the technical features and the endogenous capabilities to do it, whether it will actually do it, hard, 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 to, hard to claim. And finally, so I think a lot of these arguments, when I say about countries will, like we, like we live in a finite planet with lots of specific geographies, with lots of different political cultures and a distribution of resources and political systems that like will heavily constrain how that would happen, right? And we don't live in like a sort of a neutral blank slate where like country A and country B are just, you know, anonymous flags making these economic choices in some sort of abstract, you know, model. Like they have very different interests and historical legacies and constraints. And so like you look at the world system right now, it's fundamentally divided and has like big structural poles in it that are going to be the dominant forces dividing up, you know, who's got the power to write the rules. Like the monetary system, the monetary order, it's moving downstream of a geopolitical order, right? Like the reason the dollar is a global reserve currency is because we won World War II uh, and everyone was destroyed. Um, and we were able to sort of, you know, rewrite the rules and then sort of implant and then get those network effects and then use them, you know, our collective military force to, to reinforce that over time. So you would need to have like a, a structural change to the balance of power in the world system to see the dollar like fundamentally shift, right? You could go back to like the 20s and what you saw in sort of the 20s is sort of the, the pound was the global reserve currency. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. They had taken it from the Dutch um, a few centuries earlier and essentially the dominant maritime empire, right? And sort of great oceanic in, uh, imperial powers are sort of the world system, you know, baton being handed off from the 1600s, um, and usually conquering into the inland, which was somewhat separated from that, you know, um, nascent sort of mercantile imperialist system. And so the pound was like the more recent version of that, where like everyone wanted the pound and hold the pound. Well, they ran into some problems in World War I uh, that sort of put some chinks in the armor and allowed the U.S., like the Lend-Lease Act, essentially, you know, start to encumber them with respect to this rising power and status quo imperial power. But, you know, they weren't like totally knocked off. Uh, and the world essentially was more in like a mixed reserve system. The pound was, was really strong. Dollar was getting there. And really, it was where the center of trade finance was. So London and London was the dominant center of trade finance. Yeah. And so trade finance drove sort of the monetary order. And so London, like London bills and like the London houses, like, you know, that was the foundation of that was the, the heart of the global economic system. And there was this sort of there was this sort of frenemy, you know, still Anglophone alignments. They didn't fight wars, but it was a tension between New York and London. It took World War II to really knock London off. And then and then New York was able to basically, you know, come out on top and the dollar, the dollar reigned supreme. Now we see a system where China and US, like China does not have the amount, and I don't believe this, I don't think China wants to or can supplant the dollar. And so it's more a matter of there isn't necessarily gonna be like like, it's not like an either or, there is a global reserve. This is China, it's either the yuan or the dollar. It's just, you have usually just a declining dominance and just a slight, and there's a, a more diversification of how people approach their reserve asset holdings. And for me, like the key decision make, uh, like balancing agents in that system are gonna be the like the, the, the Eurasian periphery and the Middle East. So like what, what OPEC and India do is basically gonna, gonna 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 shift the balance because if you're OPEC, right? These these surplus countries, the reason why we sent you know the Treasury Secretary to to uh, to Jeddah in 1973, uh, Secretary Simon, to meet with the the king uh, was to engineer the petrodollar system, which was you know okay we're off gold, like we basically need to like link the dollar <laughs> to like something, and it was effectively oil. But oil was really just like the pass-through to get those dollars into the treasury market. And, and that was the idea. It's like, okay, now the treasury security, full faith and credit, 
is the foundational asset that everyone who's like selling anything, including nations that are, you know, oil exporters have to hold. And the deal we made with the Saudis is we would protect them and, you know, give them uh, and they'd have to buy our weapons, right? So that's the key, you know, looking ahead to the next five, 10 years, it's like, you have to see the geopolitical order, how that might unfold to really back into what the monetary order might, might, might change to. There's a lot of talk going on about um, Russia in response to all the sanctions that have been mm -hmm. levied on them of uh, unleashing a, um, a gold-backed uh, digital ruble. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on how that would play out. And, and I understand the kind of the devils in the details of this mm -hmm. and, uh, and people try, try to pick it apart uh, mm -hmm. once it comes out. But uh, does this actually uh, cause a ripple in the uh, glo global ep economic scene or not? So I, I've seen good analysis that, um, you know, lays out a hypothetical scenario where Russia could leverage its large gold position to uh, essentially try to destabilize Western commodity, like like specifically gold markets, um, and you know essentially you know cause a dramatic you know revaluation of the price of gold. Um, I don't see necessarily that happening in a digital gold. I think it's mostly buzzwordy stuff. I mean, I don't see much people taking it. I think Russia is somewhat in a bad position right now. I don't see they have um, you know they they, they have a, a sort of key ace in the hole, which is their commodities. But it's like a negative weapon, right? It allows them to sort of cause pain, but it's gonna be hard for them to sort of engineer a new system. For that, they really need China. Um, so they really need to basically they're effectively Putin is now under the wing of 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 Xi, effectively. If you think about like how the global system is gonna evolve in the next five, 10 years, and where that might lead to you know, people taking different, you know, attempts at rewriting a monetary structure, you know, Europe is, you know really going to you know march to the tune of us right like they're going to now be continue, you know relying on, on on liquid natural gas uh supplies uh from us for the next several years if not indefinitely right. <laughs> um so they're tucked under our wing uh and 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 russia being you know economically sanctioned and isolated and, and extremely economically um uh sort of destabilized is going to be very beholden to to china so you know think about it like ukraine is really a proxy war essentially between uh, this 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 great power confrontation between the U.S. and, and China to a certain extent, um, where, where Putin kind of got the green light from Xi, and so what China really wants to do is really what what they'll allow or let Putin try to do with any sort of new currency regime. And there's been talk about Eurasia, like a Eurasian trade block, and trying to expand that Eurasian trade block, and then use that you know tight web of trade relationships and political relationships to launch. It's like a, a new currency, whether it's like a Eurasian euro, essentially, um, <laughs> that would be pegged to commodities because that's their economic sort of asset, right? Um, I'm not sure how though that's going to work. I think China is trying to use the yuan in a in, with like limited convertibility for surplus nations specifically. Because if you think about like what, what the, the the exorbitant privilege that America has that benefits you know certain sectors of the economy over others is that we can print dollars and get real assets, right? The consequence of that is that the people taking those dollars on the other side of the transaction then use those to buy uh, to buy up our assets. So we get consumer goods, but they get you know our equities and real estate. So China likes the current system; it's like working for them, right? Like right. they now own lots of our our companies. They they can spread that money around through throughout the rest of the world and buy things up. But they know that like it's like an, a means to an end. It's not like an indefinite system for them. And so China and Russia together have this no limit strategic partnership that they announced just before um, the Olympics and then or just at the end of the Olympics, uh, just before he launched the invasion. And uh, there's you know potential cracks in that foundation, but fundamentally, you know, Eurasia as a landmass is like the economic heartland, right, of the world system, right? Like those those um, you know, commodities and and resources is what the Western sort of you know maritime powers. You can like think about like the old di sort of dialectic between Great Oceania and sort of you know like uh, Eurasia, right? And sort of the the competition between those uh, basic elements of the of, of the direct, of the geographic system. Um, I don't think I think Putin has like a big digital gold like card up his sleeve. Um, I think they're looking for incremental changes. And I think China is looking to see how they can take advantage of this 
And the, the key balancers are, are going to be what the Saudis do and what like India does. And the Saudis and the rest of OPEC, essentially the, the, the key idea there is it's a it's about the stock and a flow decision. Like the flow decision is when they when like Glencore, which is a big like commodity trading company, wants to like buy a cargo, you know, an, an oil shipment from 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 Saudi Aramco, they borrow dollars from say JP Morgan. JP Morgan debits them those dollars. JP Morgan then says, or uh, Glencore then says, give those dollars to Saudi to Saudi Aramco. I get the oil. The oil goes to whoever they sold the oil to. Saudi Aramco takes those dollars, gives them to the, the Saudi Monetary Authority. Saudi Monetary Authority then shows up at a treasury auction and gives those dollars back to the Treasury Department for U.S. debt. And the U.S. debt that they buy actually just remains in custody. It's just the ledger entry that says it like you own this treasury security. It's maintained on the books of the Fed. And so the Saudis were like happy to play that system for 50 years. Um, but now, you know, MBS is a millennial sociopath, <laughs> and yeah. he's kind of has some antagonisms to the, to the to the West, who he feels doesn't respect him. Jake Sullivan, that security advisor, went over there and got a stern talking to. Um, and and then they announced, of course, that they're going to maybe denominate some of their sales in yuan. I think that was mostly just like a petulant kind of middle finger to the West um, for a start. But like that shows you like the chinks in that system is it's normally these. Uh, these these autocratic power structures that we put in place and you know sustained over decades that now may want to hedge their bets because maybe they don't trust that like a future administration could come in and say, you know, actually we're going to penalize you MBS for saying something bad or being a bad guy. We're not going to let you like those treasury securities aren't yours anymore, right? Uh, and so there's an incentive for those people to be like, all right, well, yes, the U.S. capital account is is open to me. Like that's the premise of being the global reserve currencies. You have to allow a capital, an open capital account. The free flow of capital in and out is like what you have to allow, which means a lot of Russian and Chinese money and Saudi money and Qatari money comes into our system, right. which has all these pathological effects and corruption and, and buying up our, our our assets. But if you're if you're one of those countries, you're like, all right, the U.S. capital account is open to me now, but if I get on their bad side in the future, it could be closed to me like like this. And they look at China and they go, well, yes, China's got a closed capital account and a managed currency and internal debt problems, and they're not exactly super strong, but they'll make me a special favor, right? Because like we're part of the autocratic club. And so <laughs> while, it's nominally, while it's nominally closed to me, it could be open to me in the future. And so, you know, which is, a, you know, again, it's all about shiftings on the margins. It's not like a binary flip of the global order, like all of a sudden, it's just, you know, going from like a certain level of unquestioned dominance and the system is stable for all time to the system is not so stable, you hedge, you look for alternatives, you diversify. And if you're one of those autocratic uh, you know, oil exporters, you're gonna start to, start to hedge your bets. Um, and that's, I think the key idea is, where do they hedge their bets? And they don't have a whole lot of good options, which is why the dollar is gonna remain still very strong, right? It's like the dollar is very strong because people need it to service the massive amount of debts that they have. And so they're kind of trapped into owning dollars. They have to get these dollars. Like that's the pathology that drives, you know, like the, the dollar index to 103 is whenever there's any stress in the system, people's debts, you know, start to become um, hard to service. The demand to get dollars to service those debts goes up and that creates like a, a feedback loop where people need more dollars um, and that exports, you know, basically more inflation to those countries. Uh, it makes it more difficult for them to service those debts. And you know, we essentially like that's a system we engineered <laughs> for a reason, right? Like it was a weapon that we, we that we wielded to essentially crush, crush, you know, people that you know w weren't playing by our rules. Um, and to the extent that people have the, the, the wherewithal to sort of tell the U.S. to to, to you know get lost. That's what we're going to try to do. And that's where energy, somebody comes down to resources and energy, right? Like if you've got the goods, you can write the rules. If you've got the commodities that, you know, you as an industrial civilization need, well, you can, you've got leverage, right? And I think right. those, those countries are going to use that leverage. Um, whether they diversify, yeah, I think the way this is going to settle out is they're going to, it's going to be a sort of all above. They're going to have enough liquidity and enough different currencies like dollars, euros, you know, and the yuan and the pound and the, and the, and the yen to service their liquidity to manage sort of a, a, a multipolar trade blocks, but they're going to essentially sweep you know their non-liquidity needs in terms of reserve assets into harder assets that might be like real estate or equity in in countries who are like they're friends with 
It might be gold in a vault somewhere, and it might be Bitcoin, right? As sort of money that's not a liability of someone else, that's not politically contingent, that can't be sort of flipped off or on, um, you know, if you get crosswise with a different um, political administration. So I think that's the new dynamic. We don't know exactly where that equilibrium is going to be, and a lot of like hard power can be brought to bear to change that equilibrium, to enforce uh, a certain equilibrium. Um, the question is, like what precipitates, you know, a certain um, use of force uh, to sort of, you know, like, you know, coups have been made of lesser things. And so this is where they, <laughs> people, people have these confident predictions that these things are just going to happen in a vacuum, like the market will just decide. It's like, well, we don't live in that world, right? We live in a world with bombs and, 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 you know, spies and assassins. And it's like when, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the chips are down, you know, you know, things who happen. Knows? Right? Yeah, so, so yeah. So I noticed that uh, you haven't mentioned anything about any of the other altcoins, um, uh, whether it's uh, Polkadot or, or Terra or mm -hmm. Solano or um, ApeCoin or whatever it might be. Um, <laughs> Terra's been doing interesting stuff. Yeah, and uh, so are you, are you basically writing them off or do you consider yourself a kind of a Bitcoin maximalist? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I would say I I am I treat them as like fundamentally different things, and so worthy of very different aspects of my attention, right? In the sense that like Bitcoin, I view as like the sole geopolitically, sort of macro macroeconomically relevant assets over any sort of relevant time horizon. So if I'm thinking from that perspective, like where if there's anything from the crypto world that's going to have any any role to play whatsoever in these unfolding geopolitical and monetary dynamics, it's Bitcoin. So if I'm asked, if I'm looking at that question, Bitcoin's the only thing to me that's like relevant to that question. There's like other questions that are still interesting to ask, like what does crypto writ large mean for the future of different types of sort of monetary related technologies and other, other platform, you know, Web3 ecosystems. And I have say a higher, a higher level of skepticism associated with those. Um, not to say that it's in all going to go away. I think these things have a have a tendency to stick around. Um, I just haven't yet seen a compelling, like, long term use case that has demonstrated viability to me. Right? I see a lot of a lot of like casino right chips, and people like going to the casino. People like gambling. People like doing these things. Um, I haven't seen much like true innovation come out. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm still cautiously optimistic, but I am. I'm, I, I need to be, I need to be, I need to see more than what I've seen thus far. I mean, I think there's a lot of innovation potentially, right? But like everything else, like in venture capital world, right? There's like 99 terrible ideas that get a lot of money that can last for a long time, as long as the money's flowing and then nothing happens, they, they disappear. And maybe there's gonna be that one in a hundred that actually find a product market fit, that actually have a self-sustaining economic model that actually, you know, deliver some, you know, value to their users that isn't just like a Ponzi leveraged yield farming token scheme. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm, I'm yet to be, I'm yet to be convinced. Um, but uh, uh, I'm not going to write it off, you know, a hundred percent. But it is, it's interesting. There's a cultural dynamic here that I think I'm also. To, when you mentioned Bitcoin maximalism, it's hard for me to know like whether I would describe the label that to myself because I don't know like what sort of social valence that has in different different contexts. But essentially, for me, it comes down to like. A view of like the rights of the user in that system. So in Bitcoin, fundamentally, the rights you have as a Bitcoin user are fundamentally a different type of right than you have in a different in a different token system, where you're essentially a second class citizen, right? Like there's there's founders, there's the sort of cloistered developers that run the foundation that are essentially have veto power to a certain extent, can you know tweet out that we're you know pausing the blockchain, <laughs> like standby, right? <laughs> you know, like so you're investing in those things like you invest in like an equity, right? Like and that's not to say that like 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 equity is not a bad thing. Like equity is great, right? Like those companies could be doing good things. But like you shouldn't pretend that like you, when I buy like a share of Microsoft, like I'm not on the board of Microsoft, right? Like I don't right. pretend that I have some like equivalent uh, uh, sort of uh, right to run Microsoft or make decisions about Microsoft just because I own a share of Microsoft. Whereas with Bitcoin, like I think I do have that right, right? Like being a Bitcoin holder, like there's there's no distinction to be made between. Uh, any 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 person who runs a node, right? Other than the economic power of that node, um, and so the idea of like rough consensus development, the sort of sociological uh, phenomenon that is Bitcoin 
as a, as a network of individuals, right? Because it's this program, it's this open source software, but it's fundamentally a social phenomenon, right? It's people adopting it and then bringing in different social and political attitudes to that. Um, so when I look at like the, the question of Bitcoin maximalism, which generates a lot of heat, sometimes not a lot of light, it's the idea that in a social movement, you have to have kind of this um, like dogmatic vanguard Right, that is like the like the hardcore like sect at the at, at the core of it. Right, that like um, like will be like the the uh, the keepers of the flame. Right, and that sets up in any social dynamic. You have to have like a semi permeable permeable membrane. Right, if that membrane is 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 not permeable enough, it dies out because it doesn't let new people in. Right, and and then those things those bubbles they go to a certain size, and if they they harden their shell, no new entrants can come in and it dies. If it's too open, if you don't actually have any sort of guiding ethos or sort of commitment to sort of a core canon of beliefs, then it just it's like a, a cell that goes through whatever um, apoptosis and it right. just disintegrates the membrane and it just it, it just become it ceases to be a, a unique uh, well, a, you well, know, entity. That brings up a good point here. Um, I was I was hearing that everybody knows that uh, 21 million is the maximum number of bitcoins that can be mined, and we're at about 19 and a half million right now. Mm-hmm. And that um, uh, the uh, the number that I saw is that roughly six million bitcoins have been lost. Uh, mm-hmm. They they're buried in landfills. They're in inside of somebody's mattress that got burned or hauled away. Um, and and so Bitcoin is evaporating, kind of like uh, water from a pond, in some respects. Um, is uh, how how does that play out? I mean, there's no uh, there's no way of recovering these lost uh, assets that are. I mean, this is truly a remarkable amount of money that's that's just gone into the ether, uh, which is a bad, yeah, bad term a to quote, use. Yeah, I think there's a quote from Satoshi, or maybe it was Hal. I can't remember who Hal Finney, one of the original, you know, uh, uh, kind of Bitcoin talk folks, where he's like, every lost Bitcoin is essentially a donation to the network, right? Because it's, it's effectively uh, it if it's truly lost, if it's unspendable, if it's unspendable, un, you know, uh, UTXO then that value uh, you know, is just essentially absorbed by the rest of the network, right? Like, cause like you think about Bitcoin, it's, it's really, it's like a deep philosophical question. Like what is Bitcoin, right? What is it? And that brings up the question of what is money? So when you think about that, there's like a hard cap limit. The number 21 million was arbitrary, but what, what is essential is that that number don't like not change, right? And so it's irrelevant how many Bitcoin actually get lost, as long as you still have like some amount of Bitcoin, right? To be able to subdivide it to, to conduct transactions. Cause it's not like that, that is like, um, uh, like it's not like a dollar where like there was a certain number of dollars, dollar-based purchasing power, you burn 10% of the dollars, like those other 90% of the dollars become worth more. Like it's because it's a fixed cap, like that, that just sort of, it's like, um, it's like, a, it's like a compressionless fluid, right? It's like, you just, you like you, if you compress the container, and you lost some, like the pressure in the container stays stays constant. Um, and so, yeah, there's no like effect at all for the network if people lose their Bitcoin. It just you know sucks to be them. Um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, like macroeconomically, it has no it has no impact. Um, now, it, unless it was like a massive custodian, right? So like if tomorrow, right, we found out that like you know uh, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust had for whatever reason like just screwed up their custody, and now like I don't know half a million, half a billion, yeah, half a million um, Bitcoin just been like erased. Oof. Well, like everyone else's Bitcoin would be great for everyone who holds Bitcoin because then like, you know, you know, every, every, the price would go up by that proportional amount that was lost effectively because that's the total amount that can ever be spent. Um, yeah, but that is a, yeah, I don't see that as a risk. Um, you know, there's, but there is a, there is a deep rabbit hole to go into about where, what do we mean when we say, like Bitcoin is a very unique type of transaction system. It's not like an account-based model where like right. right now we have a ledger system of money where I have an account at the Bank of America, you have an account at JP Morgan Chase, essentially just two books, like ledger entries, right? Liabilities and assets that say, you know, you own this and then I have a liability that matches that on the other side. When I'm going to make a transaction between A and B and they have different banks, 
right? They just like adjust each other's books proportionally. They just say, all right, I'm debiting this and crediting over here, which is rewriting a ledger entry. It's just saying over here, this person has less in their account, this person now has more. They settle that through Fedwire, through the Federal Reserve. So everything gets cleared through the Fed. And they use reserves, which are bank money, to essentially adjudicate those balances. Bitcoin is a very different, fundamentally different type of model. It's similar in the sense that it's ledger-based money, right? In the sense that like it's a it's a ledger of transaction history. But when you spend a Bitcoin, you're like sending the whole UTXO, and then you're splitting out and sending back a transaction to it's like unspent transaction output. So you're basically saying, I'm sending this transaction, and then I'm basically pre-coding in like payment back to me, yep. which is the delta of what of what the payment was for. And so then I get a new UTXO that is like, that's that that amount. So it's like a fluid, essentially. It's like this, these are just, um, these are just bare quantities being transposed. And then the transaction is bare quantities is then being uh, codified on the ledger. It's just like a, it's like a story communally. It's like I, the best um, analogy I heard, um, there's a, there's an essay called, um, I think, what is Bitcoin by, by a philosopher named uh, Craig Warmke. And he, like analogize as a as a fictional substance, uh, almost like butterbeer in Harry Potter, where it's like <laughs> if you imagine like you know everyone agrees like what Harry Potter is like the book Harry Potter. There's no like forgeries like you can like you can have your own fan fiction and you can have lots of different things happen to butterbeer, but that's not butterbeer. Butterbeer is what people agree is butterbeer in Harry Potter. And so if there was like you know a group agreement on how to basically adjust everyone's own personal copy of Harry of that Harry Potter book to you know. Inc like double the amount of butterbeer that Harry Potter drinks in a certain scene or subtract it. And everyone now had this con distributed consensus mechanism to change that quantity. And there was a, a basically an enforcement mechanism that was distributed to, to ensure that they all agreed on exactly how much butterbeer went up or down in everyone's copy of the book. That's basically Bitcoin, right? It's like, and now that you have that, you can do things with that. Now you know that when you transact, that that record is going to be maintained. Uh, yeah. and stored and now you can have confidence to, to use it as, as a as a means of value yeah let me ask from a little bit different angle um if the, if the six million have been lost if there's no uh method of recovery for a lost bitcoin is isn't it reasonable to assume that over the next thousand years every single bitcoin will be lost um and that there's none left um <laughs> well, there, because I mean, there's no yeah. there's no mechanism for for bringing anything back. Yes, I mean this is where you go into the far future, right? Like <laughs> is still stuck on this planet in a thousand years, and we're still having to use money like Bitcoin. I don't know. I have not have much confidence in you know our, our our future civilization. Like we need to get we need we need to make it through this century. Um, but uh, you know maybe we we'll need some help with the aliens. We'll see. Uh, that's a separate topic. But but yes, I. I mean, fundamentally, though, like because like a, uh, a Bitcoin, uh, like the smallest unit in the protocol is a Satoshi, which is a hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. So yeah. if the purchasing power of a Satoshi became equivalent to like a dollar today, then like one Bitcoin would be the equivalent of a hundred million dollars worth of purchasing power. And so maybe you only need like a few 10,000 Bitcoin to remain like you know in usable transactional service if the value of a bitcoin is so large relative to the purchasing power of that economy and you can denominate it you can sub you have the subdenominated units of a satoshi then then you're 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 good right um in fact even a satoshi can be denominated through the lightning network into millisatoshi so you have right. like you know like a thousandth of a of a satoshi so yeah if you got to a situation where like the world economy was like in the quadrillions of dollars or tens of quadrillions of dollars and that was like all bitcoin and like 90% of all Bitcoin is lost. You could do the math and figure out, okay, like how much like a millisatoshi would would, would like be equate to. And is that a sufficiently small enough unit to be usable as a unit of account? And even if it wasn't, if it was like say too large, like it was, you know, uh, like $500 worth, right? Like people would just invent like another credit system for the smaller transactions, right? Like which we've done throughout human history. Like you have, like, you have rhinestones in the village that are like, this is the generational reserve asset but no one transitions with those reserve stones. You use this other ledger system that's like a community agreement of just like putting notches, and then like the local chief says, "Okay, yes, that's a transfer of of, of wealth." So, like again, not like I don't see it as a big problem, right? Like because I think even if you got to like like there's five Bitcoin left, but the purchasing power of those Bitcoins were so large, you know, if it was a constraint and you're just basically adding a different denomination at the bottom, um, you know, it's not a very. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's 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 like a it's a question, like the whole, same question with gold, right? If we like thousand years, we find like an, we were able to like mine, you know, 
like asteroids. And now we have like quadrillion, you know, a quadrillion dollars worth of gold now that we can dump into our, our, our economic system. Well, that's a big problem, right? But like <laughs> people still value gold at whatever $1,800 an ounce today, right? Knowing that like in 50 years, maybe we can harvest asteroids, but that hasn't been priced in. <laughs> right. Uh, the, uh, the, the market isn't that efficient. Yeah. Well, excellent. Uh, it feels like we've talked about every single thing in the entire world. Is there anything you want to leave our audience with? Um, yeah, we really jumped around. Um, <laughs> I would say, uh, yeah, I, I'd say my final thought is, so I'm thinking about things, I think to step out, right? Like my, my, my meta approach, I think people, you know, cause you get any specific question and there's nuance, there's complexity, but like for me, for me, it's like, you need to reason over time scales and set your boundaries of like what you're actually trying to assess. And then like know that you're not gonna be able to reason too far ahead to the future without like the cone of uncertainty ex like exploding like parabolically. And I think different initial conditions, like where you start that process, like make that explosion happen much faster. And like, that's where we are now. Like February 24th, when Russia invaded Ukraine, like opened up the aperture for potential scenarios, like very, like, like very quickly and very widely. Yep. And, yep. and I think it's like, like everyone's looking for the answer. Like, how is this going to shake out? Like, who's going to win? Is China going to win? Is Russia going to win? Is the U.S. going to win? It's like everyone has a strong opinion. Uh, and I sometimes, you know, it's like, all right, well, this is the way it could work out. But like, really, nobody knows. Um, and like, there's a lot of downside risks, um, but there's a lot of, you know, like ambiguity in between. I think people have a lot of like, sometimes people need to like adjust their credences down <laughs> across the full set of potential scenarios, um, and and then try to think about where. Like just making it through this period of the next five or ten years, and then maybe you know technology can bootstrap us on the other side. But for now, we're we gotta just muddle through. Um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of my. I don't know. That's not quite depressing or optimistic. Yeah. It's more just uh, yeah. being uh, <laughs> being intellectually uh, humble, uh, but also like prepared for like lots of tail tail risks or tail events that maybe are now closer to the center of the probability distribution. That's about how I would expect an analyst to close the show. So thanks very much, Matt. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, this is yeah, great. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs> <laughs>